Good morning, everyone. We have a little, uh, before we get going into today's message, we have a little Memorial Day encouragement. Dennis, will you come on up? And Dennis was sharing this email with me this morning earlier, and I thought, he was saying, maybe we, what if we should share this? I said, why don't you share it, being you knew the guy, or know the guy. I shouldn't say, it's not past tense. We're not that far down the trail yet. Come on up. I don't know about you, but once in a while something just seems to click <coughs> that it's supposed to happen. And I was uh, had a reason to go through some old slides. I found a box of slides from my uh, military background. <coughs> and uh, I was just looking at these slides. Some of them were back in Vietnam and uh, base at Tuiwal, where I was based. Uh, flew out of there with other men. And uh, this one slide in the middle of the picture was Tom Griffith, and I hadn't thought about Tom for over 50 years. And uh, in the picture also was my roommate, <laughs> and uh, he never made it back, and one other man who didn't make it back. And, and so I, I kept thinking, I wonder where Tom is 50 years later. And the truth is, I have not stayed connected with anybody to speak of there until m most recently. So that happened, and <coughs> I went to my uh, laptop that evening, and uh <coughs> there was a message here, and it was from Tom Griffith. And uh, I've come to find out he is the president of the Super Saber Society. I'm a member. It's, it's just a society of, of old fighter pilots. And uh, anyway, so he had sent this message for Memorial Day. And it's, it's, it might be a little more personal toward, uh, toward people who have served or, uh, and I don't intend to, to bring any difficult memories. I know it can be a difficult time. Higher. Closer. Thanks, Coach. Back off. Have I catch it? <coughs> they don't let me up here too often, obviously. Reasons why. I'm technologically challenged. <coughs> so here's the message from uh, Tom Griffith. <coughs> it says, freedom doesn't come overnight, and it doesn't come easy. You have to nourish and nurture the idea with your blood and sacrifice. Those of us who have served our country truly know the sacrifices of being a member of the armed services. Months and years away from our family, moves to all parts of the world, missing our children's birthdays or worse yet, their birth. Flying missions that raised the hair on the back of our necks and drained every ounce of energy from our bodies. We have seen our friends, wingmen, and many others make the ultimate sacrifice. There are very few things worse than watching one of our men go down in flames or hit the ground and not see a parachute. We have flown those long, grueling missions when we looked for signs of survival on the ground or prayed to hear that wonderful call from their survival radio. This Memorial Day, we remember the fallen, our friends, our squadron mates, our heroes. 
We must remember the courage of those who fought and died so that we have our freedom. We can never forget that supreme contribution and the impact they've had on our lives both then and now. We must never forget their surviving family members. Stay in touch with them. It is important that they not be left alone. On this Monday, May 30th, we honor all the men and women who have given their lives in service for this country and for their families. We absolutely need to applaud the Ukrainian soldiers, sailors, and airmen who are demonstrating courage beyond measure as they fight to save their country. <laughs> I'm sure this is a personal note here. I'm sure all of you would relish the chance to go with me and take a flight of A-10s, F-16s, F-35s, or even some old F-100s and attack one of those long, bogged-down Russian convoys. Please take this opportunity to visit the graves of the fallen and decorate them. I envy those of you who live in the D.C. area, I don't, <laughs> and have the opportunity to go to the Vietnam Wall. We have a beautiful replica of it here in Bozeman, which I will visit and then go to the grave of one of my West Point classmates. It's a tough day, but I look forward to it every year. Uh, God bless all of you, and God bless America. Well, since his email obviously was there, I decided I'd just quick email him back and got him. And uh, we decided that after 50 years, maybe that was too long a span. You know, we might not make it another 50 years. So we've uh, committed to get back together. And I also uh, asked him if, I said, hey, I said, can I read this? Can I read this at uh, our uh, Sunday service? So I, I had permission to read it. I'm not speaking out of turn here. So thank you, uh, Mark, where'd you go? If anybody needs to go. We good? Is it? Yeah. Yeah, let's do that actually. Father, we do. We hold up whatever this alert is and um, whoever's involved, <coughs> especially, Lord, if it's uh, some of our young kids in the society, Lord, who uh, seem like they're just constantly under attack recently and I uh, just pray Lord you just protect them for sure and uh, Lord that um, through your ministry of justice as you call it our government that uh, <coughs> Lord that uh, justice would be served and uh, again we just call for safety and and uh, lean on you Lord for an answer for whatever this amber alert is and hold these people up to you Lord in Jesus name Amen. Before we get going and just kind of a follow-up, as I talked, I let out <coughs> last week a little bit talking about uh, what's going on in the community and um, all the great things that are happening actually in Chewila Sports this spring. Josh, you guys got third, huh? You lost. Hey, good job. They had a great season. Great season. They ran into a real buzzsaw, the Brewster Bears, who eventually, uh, the next game, won the state championship. And uh, they beat you by one, I think, right? Is that right? And uh, so it was a heartbreaking, heartbreaking loss in the semifinals. And then they came back to beat Colfax um, in the uh, 
third and fourth game, or thir- for third place, and Colfax got fourth. We also have, uh, let's see, what else happened? The tennis, first place in state, girls, so we don't have anybody, I don't know if we have any, does anybody play tennis? You play tennis? I mean, for high school, Don. Uh, didn't Silas play tennis? Silas played tennis. Not for the girls' team, though. That's a good thing. And, yeah, uh, some first place uh, and third place for the track team. So really excited. They, Chewila kind of uh, came away with a bunch of hardware this weekend. So that's a great thing. And uh, <coughs> we've concluded last week our uh, series on First Timothy. And, um, and uh <coughs> the overarching thought that Paul... Uh, shares with Timothy in both First and Second Timothy, and also he shares with his other young protege, not so young protege, but uh, Titus, uh, in encouraging them to, to lead the church where they are. Uh, uh, Timothy was in Ephesus, Titus was uh, leading in the town of Crete, the city of Crete, and <clears throat> but that overarching theme that, that Paul had for them was to endure, to endure, don't give up. Keep fighting for the faith, he says that time and time again. He says, fight for the faith. He says, endure all that comes your way. There's going to be people that come with false doctrine, different ideas. Uh, you're going to have people scatter, leave the faith. Um, all this craziness that's going to happen, he says in a sentence, hey guys, just endure. Keep pressing forward. Keep moving forward. Uh, keep leading the people. It led me to a question this week. It led me to a question this week, and we're going to kind of camp really uh, for several weeks on this question, and we're going to look at uh, some character profiles of different people throughout the Word of God uh, that, that <coughs> uh, give us some clues on how to answer this question for us today. And here's the question. How do we as Christians... How does we as Christ followers, how do we thrive in a decaying culture? How do we thrive in a decaying culture? This is essentially, in a, in a, in a nutshell, you could say that, that that was kind of behind the question, behind the encouragement, uh, actually not question, but the encouragement that Paul had for Timothy uh, and for Titus, because at that time, it wasn't too many more years, it wasn't too much longer where the church really become under heavy, heavy persecution by the Roman government. And so Timothy and Titus, in a sense, and the Christians in that first century, uh, in reality, actually all of them, they were, they had to figure out, how, how, how do we make this work? How do, how do we march forward? How do we they had to ask the question. I'm saying that we have to ask the question, how do we thrive in a culture, in a society that's in decay? Several times through the series in First Timothy, I mentioned this uh, statement. I mentioned that we're now living in a post-Christian nation. So buckle up, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Uh, I've heard it said this way in, in, in that regard. As Christians, we, we don't have the home field advantage anymore. We live in a post-Christian society. And I'm, when I say that, it's a broad brush statement, but it's a statement based upon where 
where our laws have gone, where society has changed, the, the societal norms that are out there, what's acceptable. It, there, there's no shame. There's no shame for where society is right now. Anything's accepted. There's no moral standard. It's whatever you can kind of get away with. If you're willing to, if you're willing to pay the price, go for it. That's kind of the societal standard today. We're in a post-Christian nation. We need to tighten our seatbelts. We need to wrestle this question to the ground. Then how do we thrive in a decaying culture? How did I get to this conclusion? What were some of my thoughts? I'll give them to you. I have a few. For the past 60 years in America, <clears throat> uh, objective truth has been uh, steadily denied. The objective truth of the Word of God has been steadily just pushed down, pushed down. In our society, I'm not saying in every single person, but as a societal norm, objective, the objective truth of the Word of God has been constantly under attack, been denied, uh, been eroded away as a societal norm. The second one is, is that we've abdicated justice. We've abdicated our, our, our justice system is not just in a sense that there's not, <clears throat> uh, it, the whole thing, uh, it doesn't matter what, it, what situation, what crime was committed, from the time that they take that person into custody, then it's years and years and years, get strung out and forever. There's no justice. There's no justice. And I shouldn't say that there's no justice, but the justice system has changed and we've abdicated the truths in the word of God for a different agenda. And part of the reason we see these horrific things that have happened and happened recently is there's no deterrent. The shootings in Buffalo, the shootings in Texas. There's, there's, there's not a societal understanding that if I go and do some horrific crime that I'm going to pay immediately for that. It's not there in our society. So we've changed that. We've, we've gone away from what used to be a standard. When a comedian used to say, hey, if you kill somebody in Texas, we'll kill you. <laughs> and it used to be a funny joke until the other day. Now it's not so funny anymore. We need to hold up that little community there that lost so many. We need to pray for their healing. We need to pray for their comfort. But we need to pray that justice will be metered at appropriately. We need to get back to that as a society. But in the meantime, it's kind of lost. How do, we, how do we thrive in a society that loses these things? The third one is, is that <clears throat> general morality, civility, and ethics are now situational. So we wonder why we get into these, you know, huge economic jams and, and we think back, if you think back at all, uh, how many years has it been? 20 years since the whole Enron scandal, the big you know, financial meltdown of a big company and, and all the lying and everything that took place with, with all of that, <coughs> inflated stocks, the whole thing. Uh, that's, because, that's because in our society, as a norm, we base what's truth on the situation. We take a course as a society based upon what best suits us rather than an objective standard of truth, even if it means that we end up in peril as a society. 
So we've lost that. The morality, the ethics, all that go with it are now situational. What can you get away with? How much money does it take to get out of this jam? All of those types of mindsets. And then the last one is, is that life itself has been devalued. Life itself in our culture, in our society, has been devalued. Again, I say, not every single person thinks that. Not all of us think that, in a sense. I'm talking in a broad brush as a society, life has been devalued. We've, we've now lived 50 years with Roe v. Wade as the standard when it comes to, uh, <coughs> you know, abortion issues. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you see now a huge push in, in end-of-life issues. Uh, life has been devalued. We don't have the societal standard that every single person is created in the image of God. We're the imagio Dei, they say. And so that standard has been decreased. It's been pulled down. And now it's been replaced with something else as a society. It's part of the reason where our culture is in decay. Now these recent events of the Supreme Court stuff and some of that kind of thing that's going on and it's only a possibility, let's be honest at this point, we don't know what's exactly what's going to become of that decision. We need to be praying, of course, for our Supreme Court justices. Um, but all of these and many more point to the fact that we live in this po- post-Christian society and that society is in decline. So again, how do we thrive in a decaying culture? How do we dis- to thrive in a decaying society? Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to spend a little time. We're going to spend several weeks. I'm not sure exactly how many. Uh, and we're going to discover, <coughs> we want to discover um, this point. Because this is the encouragement I want to start with on the, on the front end. That your heavenly Father, my heavenly Father, the creator of the universe, he specializes He specializes in these situations. It's the greatest story ever. God specializes in rescuing his people that are in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, in the midst of a decaying society. That's what he's good at. And so on the front end, I don't ask this question, I don't make this set this premise out in front of us on the table to say this, because I want to be real clear about this. You're not a victim in this society. I'm not a victim in this society just because we're in a post-Christian society. Do not gravitate towards that leaning whatsoever. You're not a victim. I'm not a victim. Okay? Things are going to happen. Do people get victimized? Yes, they do. But just because we end up in the minority now and it's changed since decades past, that doesn't make us a victim, and it shouldn't push us towards a victim mentality. We are overcomers in Christ. Amen? All right, let's get started. Let's look at our first guy uh, right from the get-go. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. The all-familiar story, if you grew up going to church like I did, uh, and especially in the 70s and the 80s, at some point, you were in a Sunday school class or a children's church class, and the, the old 
Uh, flannel graph was up front. Remember that? You guys, these kids are like, what's a flannel graph? Is that like an app for my phone? It's not an app for your phone, kids. Do you guys know what a flannel graph uh, Should I explain it? Okay, I'll explain it real quick. A flannel graph was, uh, they had a, th- a three-legged easel with a board on it with a background that was flannel. It was a flannel sheet. Probably have some of this stuff downstairs, don't we, Gloria? In the back, in the storage room. It's all there. We can just drag it up here and have fun, right? And, <coughs> and on the, the flannel, so flannel will stick to flannel, right? You get me? And so every week for Children's Church, whoever was preparing the lesson, at least when I was a kid, they would tell the Bible story with different characters on the flannel graph. And if you were there when, uh, let me pull an old name out of the history, out of way back, uh, Dolores Crisp was a Sunday school teacher when I was a little kid. And Dolores Crisp, who's Don Bowe's sister, used to love to do the flannel graph. And I remember real clearly sitting there while she told the story of Noah and the Ark. Noah and the Ark. Noah's our first kind of contestant for this series of how to thrive in a decaying culture. Now, I'll give you the short version. The short version is, is that mankind had became very wicked. God raised up Noah, uh, told him to build a boat, an ark. Noah loaded the animals into that ark. God brought judgment on the earth. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, Noah and his family and all the animals on the ark were saved, and everyone and everything else died in the flood. That's pretty heavy judgment for mankind. Uh, that's what, uh, in chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 of Genesis, that's what happens to a decaying culture when God brings down a judgment. And then, of course, God started, off, started over with Noah and his family and the animals that were in the ark. <clears throat> that's the super short version. But there's some interesting details uh, here in Genesis about Noah um, because Noah didn't just survive it wasn't just a matter of like, you know, hanging on from a rope, you know, swinging over the bow of the ship, just hoping that dry land would come. It wasn't that kind of picture. He didn't just survive, uh, but he actually thrived in the midst of all of this chaos and evil. Let's pick it up. Let's read our first little indicator about Noah. It actually comes from his name. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 28 through 32, uh, <clears throat> starts off and says, Lamech, who's Lamech? Well, Lamech was Noah's father. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. <clears throat> and he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived for 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years. And he died, and died. <coughs> excuse me. And Noah was five hundred years old. And Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The first indicator, the first clue, the first, uh, the first thing we want to talk about in regards to Noah thriving in the culture is uh, he was a comfort. That's what his name means. Noah means rest. It means repose. 
It means comfort. This one will comfort us, his dad put forward when Noah was born. If you know the basics of the story, uh, how was Noah going to comfort his culture? That was a question that ran through my mind as I was studying this. How was Noah going to comfort his culture? We're going to get into that. You're going to see it a little bit later. But Noah would bring comfort. And if it's just have a cursory uh, glance at the story or a, a basic concept, you kind of miss that. Because we have a tendency to think that Noah was just kind of over here doing his thing and not really engaged or not really around or not really interacting with the people that were around him. I'm not sure that that's true. The Strong's Concordance says that comfort, this word comfort is used 108 times in the Old Testament. And one of the interchangeable Hebrew words for comfort is interesting. It's repent. It means to repent. Comfort means to repent. It's the same Hebrew word, interchangeable. And so I guess I want to say this is the point on this first thought, is that you can't have true comfort or peace with God without true repentance, a change towards God. It's not going to happen. Now, people are going to spend a lot of money. They're going to spend a lot of time and treasure and investment trying to find true comfort. Right? They're going to chase after it, chase after it, try to, try, try to get ahead of it, give all they can to find true comfort. But the reality is, is that you cannot uncouple true comfort with true repentance. And I want to say this, is that the, uh, one of the most precious things I think that a person can obtain is peace. I think that when, when, when you have peace, if you think back in your life to a time where you were restful and maybe, or restless, and maybe that's now, and, and compare it to a time where you had some peace in your life, you think back and think, man, peace, it's the rarest of commodities. It's what everybody's looking for. And how do we thrive in a decaying culture? We live a repentant life. Because repentance is not just a one-time event. It's not just a when we sin of, uh, uh, response. It should be. Now, it should be that. But living a repentant lifestyle means that we're constantly on guard. We're constantly keyed in. We're constantly demonstrating that God's grace is in our lives. So true comfort, peace with God, without true repentance, a change towards God is impossible. Switch to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. We'll give us four more quick looks. Four more quick looks before we get there. <clears throat> Actually, I'll just read. Uh, I wanted to read a little bit more of chapter 6. For the sake of time, I think we can do that. So we have Noah's name. It means to, to bring comfort, to bring rest. And here's the situation. Here's a look at the decaying culture. Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass, when the men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came 
into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men <coughs> who were of old, men of renown. Verse 5 is real key. There's a whole lot that went with the first four verses. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about it in a second. But read verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent and the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's quite an indictment. That's quite an indictment for how far this culture, this society had fallen. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9 says, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, a perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. When I read this, and as I've gone through these chapters, it really comes down to a, uh, two teams, in a way. Two sides of the fence. It comes down to, and <clears throat> this is the story of mankind actually all through history, and this will be a true uh, scenario uh, in the last days as well. Because when it all boils down, it comes down to those who follow God and those that don't. It comes down to those who follow God, God's followers as true believers, and those that are part of a decaying culture, as we've just read. Now look into this decaying culture, a, a drop-down, a quick definition or description. There was sexual perversions, Genesis 6-2. Demonic activity, same verse. Constant evil in the heart of man, Genesis 6-5. And widespread corruption and violence in verse 11. That's the, that's, that's the stage. That's the scene in the movie here of Noah. That it's bad. It's real bad. And I read through this list that I've created. Of, I read through these words and I think, <clears throat> uh, we're not a long ways away from where this is at. Now Jude 6 Verse 6 tells us that the angels uh, who did not keep their proper domain but left their own habitation. And he goes on in the next verse to tell that they had sinned in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. That's the picture of what's going on up here. If Don't get mistaken when it says the sons of God talking about mankind. That's not true. It's angelic. It's a, uh, it's a reference to those angels that had fallen and become demons having uh, sexual perversion with mankind. Part of the reason why God was so frustrated and angry with what was going on. There was heightened demonic activity, of course. And as he says there in verse 5, there's the constant evil in the heart of mankind. Constant evil. And then, of course, widespread widespread corruption and violence. I would say that they really didn't value human life 
So how did Noah, in the middle of all this chaos, how did Noah thrive in his culture? He didn't just survive, he thrived in his culture. Look there at verse 8. Actually, let's uh, skip forward. Let's look at verse 9. I'm going to come back to verse 8. Moses gives us this this look into Noah's life, and he says Noah was a just man. He was just, he was perfect in his generations, he walked with God. Those are the first three that we're going to look at. Noah didn't have the ability to be just and perfect on his own. You don't have the ability to be just and perfect on your own. I don't have the ability to be just and perfect on my own. So then how does it happen? And how can Moses write this about Noah? And how can it be said it's true of you? Here's how it's true. In faith, in faith, Noah looked for the promised seed that God told Adam about in Genesis 3.15. He was looking forward. He was holding on to that promise. He was clinging to the fact that it was true. That there would someday come somebody that would rescue us from our dilemma. There would someday be somebody that God would send, the seed of the woman, capital S on seed, talking about the future Messiah, talking about the the future one that would rescue mankind from their deepest, darkest issues. And Noah's holding on to that truth. He's holding on to that reality in the midst of, of what the Bible describes as some of the worst possible events and the worst possible time in all of human history happens right in the get-go, first few chapters of Genesis. It's that bad. I have a hard time time wrapping my mind around what it would be like for everybody on the globe to always think of evil and nothing else. Like that there would be nothing good thought about. There would be nothing good saying about it. There would be nothing good that would be joyful or pleasant. There would be nothing out there in the whole world that would be good. That would bring some sort of happiness, some sort of joy. This is a scenario that Noah is working in. This is why it goes way past the flannel graph. But the word says that Noah was continually alongside He was continually spending time with the Creator. That's how you thrive in a decaying culture, is you stay close to God and you walk with God. That you keep looking for that promised one. Now, we have the the great blessing of being on the other side of the cross, looking back at the cross and what Christ has done. But everybody in the Old Testament was on the other side They were on the opposite side of us looking forward at the cross. They didn't know it was a cross, but they were looking forward to that Messiah coming, that rescuer coming, that person that would make it all perfect, whoever that seed was. Now back to verse 8. God's looking for people to be gracious. He's looking for people to be gracious too. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, the word says there in verse 8. <clears throat> While God commanded all the earth be cleansed of the pollution, he found one man with whom 
to begin again. That was Noah. And here's what's interesting. Noah didn't earn the grace. The grace found him. He found it. It found him. God's grace poured out on Noah in that sense. He poured out on him. And this grace was a free gift from God. There's two aspects of grace. I won't dive too deep into it. But from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the great verse that Paul shares with the church in Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved. Grace is how we're saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It was the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God's grace showered out on Noah. He was the guy that God had chosen to start over again. So grace is how we're saved, and then grace is how we live. Grace is how we live. There's a great few verses there in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For, <clears throat> says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It appeared to Noah. And that same grace, verse 12, says, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That was a reality for Noah. That verse was written thousands and thousands of years later, but you can take that verse and put it back into Genesis and say, this is how the story unfolded. That God's grace that he showered out on Noah, and the same grace that God wants to shower out on you and on me and all of us, and the same grace that God has for all of mankind, should they respond to his call, is the grace by them which how, that we live by. It's a grace by which we live by, and it teaches us then to say no to sin and yes to godliness. Look at verse 13. I'll reread it. I'll start at 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Then here's what we're doing. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. You could take those verses and really overlay them right over Noah's life and the example that Noah is for future generations. So God's grace is for everyone. God's grace in sending Christ to pay our sin debt, that's for everyone. God's grace is what teaches us to say no to sin, yes to godly living. And God's grace fuels our hope in Christ's return. God's grace also reminds us that Jesus bought us, redeemed us, cleanses us, and he claims us. That's what the grace of God does. It's not an exhaustive study into grace at all. But it's fascinating to me that in all of this chaos and wickedness that Noah was living in, he found grace in God's eyes. And it was God's grace that guided him in that decaying culture. Number four, how else can we thrive in a decaying culture? We can be fruitful. Noah was fruitful. He says, Noah begot three sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, verse 10. Um, <clears throat> I'll say this, we can't be pro-life if we have a worldly mentality about having kids. You, you can't be truly like uh, about, you know, 
uh, about being fruitful if you have a worldly mentality about having kids. What's this worldly attitude you say? <laughs> uh, you see it all around you. But it's really, uh, it comes down to some of these things. It comes down to this attitude. Uh, make sure that it's convenient for you. That's a worldly attitude about having kids. As long as it's just convenient for you, right? Well, I'll tell you, after raising three kids, that the moment after the first one comes, uh, there's not a lot of worrying about convenience, <laughs> right? It's not about, having kids is not about your convenience. That's a worldly attitude. And the second one is, is kind of this idea of, you know, small, manageable, kids are expensive, you know, all that goes with all of that. I didn't notice in anywhere that I'd read in the Bible uh, when it, talking about being fruitful and multiplying um, that there was, you know, this extensive pros, cons list, all of that. This was a mandate from God that Noah was following through with. But once you have the kids, I suppose you could say there's a third one. Uh, then it's about kind of outsourcing them to the experts. That's a worldly attitude about having kids, is just whatever it is, you know, make sure that the experts are the ones that are taking care of it on your behalf. Again, a worldly attitude. You need to raise your own kids. What was this word that Noah was following that I just mentioned? Uh, Noah was working off of one set of blueprints, one set of blueprints, and it's found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28, where it says, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them. That's God's created order for mankind. No exceptions. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, and here's the, the, the word of God that Noah was working with. He says, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, Noah's nine generations from this word being spoke to Adam. There's nine generations between Adam and Noah. Noah is still working, and he's going to get this word again from God after they come out of the ark, if you read further on in the story. So God's not changed his plan just because things have gotten bad, right? He's not changed his original commands for mankind just because things have gotten spicy in the culture. No, he says we need to be fruitful. We need to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, take dominion over the planet. So you say, well, this wickedness, the majority was so extreme. How did Noah and his family thrive in that decaying culture? Here's three things that I thought of. <clears throat> and you see these kind of play out in the story clear into chapter 8. Uh, I'm going to assume, and so these are just my assumptions, I'm going to assume that Noah taught his kids God's word as he knew it. That, God, that Noah taught his kids what God's intentions were, even if it was just this one verse, you know, that it was just verse 28 out of Genesis 1. I'm going to assume based upon where Noah is, based upon the fact that, that God has showered him with favor, that God has looked over everybody on the planet at that point in time and said, this is the guy, this is like the only guy that we can move forward with. 
I'm going to shower him with my blessings. I'm going to give him grace. He's going to be the guy that gets us to the next step, him and his kids. I'm going to assume in all of that that Noah taught his kids, his boys, his wife, at least this verse out of the first chapter of Genesis. That he taught them whatever the, whatever the word of God that he knew at the time that was passed down uh, from one generation to the next, that Noah shared that with his family. He led them in that capacity. I'm going to assume that he brought them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. In fact, that's not even so much of an assumption. I have a verse for that in the next point. But he brought them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And three, that he demonstrated that it was better to be right with God than right with the culture. That was Noah's posture in leading his family. That was his posture in being fruitful. That was his posture in going forward. That he was way more important to Noah, and I'm going to say that it needs to be way more important to you and I, that we're right with God as opposed to being right with the culture. When, when being right with the culture is elevated, then whatever it is with God then will be compromised. That's the trade-off. And I'm saying, I would rather go the other way and be right with God and have there be some fissure, some crack, some compromise in my connection with the culture, not saying we should be disconnected. I'm just saying as a matter of importance, it's better to be right with God than in step with the culture. It's an interesting fact that we have to stop and think about. And one thing that never hit the flannel graph was the only kids that entered the ark and exited the ark were the ones that were still operating by these original instructions out of Genesis 1. That's it. No exceptions. Is it that much of a priority to us in how we're raising our own kids? I hope and pray that it is. So Noah receives these instructions. God tells him, all right, here's the plan. Build an ark. All the details are there in chapter 6. You can read it yourself. I'm just kind of jumping from one spot to the next. But here's the details. Go get it done. <clears throat> Seemed like it took forever in our minds. Of course, people lived a lot longer back then. But in the midst of a wicked culture that had never experienced even one rain shower, <laughs> Noah sets out on this journey to do what God had said. Simplify it down to this. Noah just simply, and this is the next point, he just simply obeyed God. He just simply obeyed the Creator. Verse 22, real simple reply. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. He just kept obeying God day in, day out, year in, year out. While everybody else was mocking him, while everybody else was making fun of him, while all the rest of the culture kept going literally to hell in a handbasket, Noah just kept obeying God and obeying God and obeying God. He kept walking forward, he kept walking forward, he kept building, he kept nailing, he kept cutting boards, he kept building this ark. I love the description that the writer of Hebrews gives us in Hebrews eleven seven. One little snippet in the Hall of Faith about Noah says this, By faith, 
Noah, being divinely warned of the things not yet seen, moved with godly fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. At the end of the story, I'll hold off on that thought for a second. That was Noah's response. That was Noah's response. He just continued to obey what God had said. One of the ways that we can, one of the ways that we can thrive in a decaying culture simply does come down to obedience. It simply does come down to, to when God says to move, to move. When God says to go left, to go left. When he says to go right, to go right. It does come down to simple obedience in that way. Now that simple obedience, Hebrews tells us, is by faith. Noah was operating in faith that when God said to do this, that though he himself had never seen rain, uh, had never experienced a flood, had never been in a, you know, cataclysmic world (laughs) weather event that was going to happen, though he himself had never experienced any of that, he was still called to take another step of obedience. He was still called to take another uh, uh, move forward, another motion forward in God's plan that God had said. And the, de- and the description there in verse 22 almost to me feels too small in light of what he was actually doing. Thus Noah just did it. Um, parents, <laughs> here's a great verse for a reply for your kids. Just do it. Noah just did it, right? But it was done by faith. It was done by faith, and what the writer of Hebrews says is a godly fear. A godly fear. And I'm going to venture to say that when the creator of the universe gives you instructions, and he's given us instructions, uh, our response should be almost that short. That we should just do it. That we should just follow through. Now, the end of the story. After the water had receded and the ark had landed on dry ground, there's one more aspect, one more picture of what it looks like to thrive in a decaying culture. Although we could say at this point that his culture was more than decayed you see the heart of Noah come out in chapter 8. You see Noah uh, and his response kind of all coming to a sense of fruition. The worship team wants to come on up. We're going to worship at the end of this uh, message. But that's kind of, as I was writing this down, that's exactly what Noah did. At the end of it all, after it was all over, after everybody that Noah and his family had knew, after everything was leveled flat with water and the water had receded, after all of that, Noah's response was to worship. Because worship, when we worship the Lord, when we focus our attention on Him, when we, we think of worship just in context of singing, that's not, that's not all there is 
biblically to worship. There's a lot more biblically to worship. In fact, that word doesn't say here that they sang anything. But we're called to be true worshipers. And I believe that part of surviving and, and rather thriving in a decaying culture is to be a true worshiper. I think that this, this sets up why Noah was so different. Why Noah stood out. Why his family stood out different in the culture. It's because Noah worshipped God. This isn't the only time that he worshipped him, I would imagine. I would imagine that in the course of, what is it, a hundred years that it took to build the ark, that there was a lot of worship that happened. But this specifically says here that Noah had built an altar to the Lord, chapter 8, verse 20, and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a smooth, soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. <clears throat> Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. The evidence, I guess, of what I want to say, the evidence that you're thriving in the midst of a culture in decline through the highs and lows, through the judgment, through, the, through all that comes, and whatever that we're going to walk through, and whatever you have been walking through, and, and whatever may come good or bad in the future, the evidence that we're thriving is really that our hearts are tuned in to God. That's the key. If your hearts are turned, tuned into God in worship and giving Him thanks and praise, He's going to carry you through those highs and lows. He's going to float you through, as it were, the difficult days or the weeks like that our country has just seen. Being a true worshiper then becomes, in a sense, that evidence. It's the evidence that your relationship with the Lord is real and genuine. It's the evidence that you're thriving even when things are difficult. Noah thrived even though things were difficult. And he serves as a great example for you and for I of what it's like when the culture starts going one way and God calls us to go a different way. And I'm here to say, as Christ followers, we're called in a different direction. We're called in a different direction. We need to not be uh, fearful of those distinction points. We don't need to highlight the evil necessarily, but we need to focus in on what God has for us to do. Where our hands supposed to be on the plow in this culture? What, what, what hammer and saw like Noah had do you have to build a better way to build not just to survive but to actually thrive what's God calling you to do my guess is now based upon these verses where God says I'm never going to flood the earth again that he's not going to call you to build a supersized wooden boat not that some of you probably don't have the skills or the resources to do that for sure but what is God calling you to do as he's separating out you from the rest of the way the world's going. Where is your hand to be laid in ministry? Where's, where's your spot in your community? Worship's no small thing. 
And Tegan's right. We're, we're putting on these events. We've, we've actually been thinking. She doesn't even know this, I don't think. She's in the nursery. We've actually been thinking about doing this for like a long time. And just have never pulled the trigger. Now's the time to pull the trigger. Especially where our community and culture is going. Let's put our hand to that plow. Let's put our hand on that hammer and saw, so to speak, metaphorically. Do what God's called us to do to advance his kingdom, to give him glory, and to worship him. Would you rise with us as we close with our last song?